So, for those of you who are relatively new tonight, we have at least two, and for us who have been here before, I intended to finish this last time. We we didn't get nearly done, so we'll do it again tonight, (laughs) and then I will have you be reading this next time. So, for those of you who have purchased R.C. Sproul's book, your assignment that you need to remember, if possible, is to read 9 through 13 and chapter 9, if you don't get those four uh, finished, those five chapters finished. Uh, and we're going to work our through, way through those. Each section is kind of a doctrine or a combination of doctrines that fit well. Um, <clears throat> last time, I gave you a survey about theology. Do you remember some of your impressions from that? People are idiots. <laughs> Should I repeat that? <laughs> online? People uh, lack intelligent power. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so what do you mean, Bob? Yeah, people are incredibly unenlightened. Yeah, people don't think theologically. Yeah, these are people who consider themselves believers. What were what was? Do you remember one of the categories? Maybe someone shared one of the categories, and what what struck you about it? Yeah, there was one about the deity of Christ, and I, and do you remember anything about that? I mean, what did they say about his deity? He was less. I think one of the categories said he was less. God than the Father. And most, and these are self-identified Christians. And it was a majority said that he was less God than God the Father. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Human nature. <laughs> Gail said a majority of self-identified Christians believe that people are good rather than bad by nature. That, that was pretty shocking to me. That might have been one of the, one of the crazy ones. <laughs> yeah, obviously they have the experience of child rearing. <laughs> uh, I still think mine is in his uh, pre-sin stage. So. <laughs> Robert. That reminds me, there was this um, co-worker of mine the other day that was speaking up in that regard. Mm. Saying, I believe people are born up. Naturally good. Yep. In the environment, in yep. circumstances, yep. turn them back. Uh-huh. And uh, another worker, co-worker of mine and me, stopped in the shore. We told them no. <laughs> yeah. Have you seen babies? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't believe that babies. Uh, if, they if they can grow up, if they can convert, are going to hell. Mm. So, well, you know, the Bible says we're all sinners. No, 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 babies. He said, we said, okay, have you seen a baby throwing several feet of rats? Yeah. <laughs> have you seen a baby bonding the needle to feet? Yikes. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm going to summarize for the people who are listening, because we have a rather large audience, actually. I think we got like 80 hits on the last one that was posted, so that's kind of cool. So um, Robert is just saying, you know, he had an experience at work with a coworker who, who thought humanity was good by nature, and I think one of the things that I like about what you said is that our experience of even infants with their tempers or their me attitude really show from experience that that's not right. And it was interesting that you said that's not what the Bible says. You know, their source of theology, like we talked about last class, is probably misplaced. Um, I actually was watching, so you know who Urban Meyer is? Anyone who know Urban Meyer is? 
Coach, yeah, coach of Ohio State. I was watching an interview after the national championship game, and he said, <clears throat> he was talking to um, Gumbel, I think one of the interviewers. They were talking about a player, and they were talking about how the environment produces the person. And he said, yeah, the environment produces the person, right? And that's just another example kind of what you're saying that our society believes. Moving on, just that's kind of what we talked about in the survey. We talked about sources and roles of theology. Okay, what were some of the roles we said theology played? Good. What were some of the good roles? We'll just stop there. Or anything that you remember from that. How does theology function for us? Give us a what? Yeah, it gives us a hint. So, okay, so explain that, sister. What do you mean? <laughs> oh, 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 okay. I thought you were saying it gives us a hint about life. Okay, so, so for the church, what might theology do for the church? What might it help us do as a local body? What does it protect against? Yeah, false doctrine. That's right, heresy. Okay? How about in our life, in our relationship with God? Gives us a structure for yeah, it tells us how to live a godly life. Or else we wouldn't know how to live it. That's kind of what I thought you meant, Gail, there. Yeah, exactly. And there were some other things we talked about, but those are two core ones. Uh, and then finally, we began to talk about revelation and scripture. What kinds of revelation are there? General and specific or special. That's right. What's an example of general that is not nature? Uh-huh. <laughs> what was the other one? There were two. What was the other thing I said? We can look to probably Romans 2, 15, or Romans 1. Yeah, conscience, our hearts. Yeah, that's right. God has given us a sense of right and wrong innately. Yeah, okay. And then specific or special revelation. There's a couple categories. What's one? Yeah, the Word of God. Yeah, and there are some others. Jesus Christ himself. And there are some other things we talked about as well. Okay, so... When we, when we talked about Revelation, I want to be clear that we're focusing on, on what we would call here for this section, special revelation. It is a one category of special revelation, the scriptures. So we're going to delve into that. I've got some activities for you to do. And remember that we're in chapters 5 through 8 from his book. So one of the things that's been helpful for me is after I teach, I go back and kind of reflect on the book. Say, okay, these are the things that maybe I didn't present well or Maybe these things I need a little refreshing from his point of view. And so I've done that, so you might do that if you have some extra time this week. Now, inspiration, we talked a little bit about this, but I want to go through this again, um, point by point, before we move on. It's really a doctrine concerning the Holy Spirit, okay? That's something we need to keep in mind when we come to Scripture, because it's not actually about the Bible. (laughs) In, In some sense it is, but it's really about what God does with the words of Scripture, not just in our lives, but in what area? How, how does this relate to what God does through the Holy Spirit and inspiration? Well, I'll give you a hint here. Is this about us reading it or about the writing of it, primarily? Yeah, it's the writing of it. And so, sometimes I think we think of illumination this way, but instead we ought to think not just of illumination in the Holy Spirit's work, but also in inspiration. And this was one of the things that I think he did a pretty good job on, on page 27. He, he outlines this pretty well. Now, this is about the source, not the method. So let me blank the screen for a second so I can have your full attention. Source, not the method. When I say source, I'm talking about where Scripture came from, not how it was recorded. And that's what he's talking about. 
Because I'm gonna have, I have an activity for you here we're gonna go into in a second that some people, you know, you've heard before, and I've, I have heard it in conversations, but also I've read it in theologies. If you read wide enough, you'll read about anything. But, um, dictation theory, that is about method, right? How scripture was written, not the source of it. So the doctrine of inspiration is not about how, but really about who or where the words of the Bible come from. That's an important distinction because if we don't start right, you'll get to some interesting conclusions there, especially when it comes to our, our daily lives. And I hope to draw that out in your group activity. Another aspect of this is that it is the very words of God. That's important because when we talk about verbal, okay, on page 29, now he makes <laughs> an interesting an important point for this that you probably heard before, but what does verbal mean? It doesn't mean words spoken. It means, a good way to think of this is verbs. Okay? The actual word that is recorded is from God. Without error in the original manuscripts. But it's like the words, the and, or the the, the two, the one consonant in the original Hebrew, nothing else, one consonant, and like the three word short letter for and, those are inspired. Those are given by the Holy Spirit. And so that's what verbal means when you talk about inspiration and inerrancy. Does that make sense? So verbal, not spoken, but the words itself. Okay. Now, <clears throat> this is why this is relatively important to our discussion as we move on on sufficiency today. Because authority comes from this source. In other words, the reason I began here, and I think the reason he kind of begins here as well, is if you don't have a good source... You're going to end up with some bad teaching or some bad thoughts. Like, you know, where do you get your news from? Everything you read on the internet is true, right? <laughs> okay? So remember your source. And that's actually very important. It's been historically one of the most important foundations of the Christian faith that we have a source that is reliable. Now, when we get to infallibility and inerrancy, we covered this already, but we're going to go through it a little bit. Cannot fail, cannot make an error. Jesus taught this. It is true. He says that on pages 31 through 34. I'm, I'm running through this quickly because I want to get to some other things here. I find this section true but unhelpful. Okay, and I said this last time. And it is true, but it's unhelpful, and I think because it, it leaves out our daily lives. Now, Bob and I had talked about this a little bit. We had a discussion in class, but it does mean this. And we need to qualify that, but I think at its base level it means this. And there's an important reason why I want to leave it here. Not add anything, because some of the issues that come with inerrancy, like we're going to look at in your example again, start with thinking that inerrancy or infallibility, and there's a difference, we'll cover that in specifics, but at a base level, adding to this definition, I think, is the biggest problem. So let me just repeat, I think that inerrancy at its core means, for everything that the Bible says, if we're to characterize that as an X, okay, the variable X, a little bit of math here, okay, then... If the Bible says X, then X. And nothing more, and nothing less, but nothing more. That's really important. Because, we'll see, I think we're going to talk about this later today, if we get there, the Pharisees tried to add. They added, they said, it's X plus Y, or X plus 1, right? Oftentimes, scientific um, scrutiny of the Bible really does this as well. It says, well, it's X, but it has to also say X plus Y, and we know that Y is a scientific claim. One really easy example that's thrown around a lot, but is very good and very helpful is, does the sun actually rise in the east? No. Well, we know that from what? Right, from physics and from, from 
observation of the solar system. It actually rotates on its axis and around the sun and yada, yada, okay. But really, the Bible doesn't care about that. Like, it doesn't, some, God cares about that in some sense, but not, not in the sense that we think of that. That's almost a purely Western invention. So we try to take an add to X. You follow? Does that, is that clear? If it's unclear, I want to make that clear to you because this is probably the best, I believe is probably the best answer for most things today. When, when people have questions about the scriptural veracity. We'll get there, but is this clear? So, if the Bible says X, then it says X, not X and Y. So, not more than X, but not less than X. Okay? Now, I have on your table some things I want you to do, as I try to do every class. Yes, great. Reuben, yes. That's a good question, Reuben. His question was, what if the Bible has some things like like the mysteries of God or things that, like, okay, so Paul, here's a good one. Paul was taken up to the third heaven, says, right? right? Says third heaven? Yeah. Third heaven, okay. What does that mean? That, I think that's kind of what you're asking us. What about those things which we can't find by reason? That's a great question. I want to answer that after you work through this. And I, I promise to answer it. I promise to answer that in specific detail. But I want you to work through this sheet first, because one of the questions I have on here is this. The truth of the Bible must be proved through reasoning. That's number four on the top. The truth of the Bible must be proved through reasoning. And number two, modern scientific methods, claims, and language must be used to evaluate the Bible. I think those are some things that really hit on your your question there, and that I want to talk about, but I want you to think through them a little bit first. So, that's a great lead-in. So I want you to work in your groups right now. I'm going to give you some time to talk about these misconceptions, because I believe these are misconceptions about the Scripture or about when we talk about inerrancy, what we mean. What we mean when we say the Bible says X, then X. It's without error. It doesn't make a mistake. So I want you to work through these as a group. Okay? The top half. And when you've worked through those, then I want you to answer the questions on the bottom. And like always... I'll try to call you as a group, and then we can have some good discussion about that, okay? But I won't forget that question, Ruben. And for this time, I want some good reasoning. I want you to come up with scripture references, okay? I don't want thoughts. I want you to have some good, hard, scriptural answers to these questions. So, let me just go through point by point and get contributions from groups. I'm not going to go, you know, specifically... At the start, if I need to, I will. But what do you think about number one? Like, what what was your discussion like on that? The Bible was mechan- sorry, Bob. I'll I'll read it. The Bible was mechanically dictated by God to the human author. Go ahead. What do you think about it? So, Bernie's question is: Does it imply a physical process? The word mechanically. Okay. What what does it imply? What is it? What is it saying here? Why is this a misconception? Yeah, it assumes control, not sovereignty. That's a very good answer to that question. I think we can move on after that. It assumes control, not sovereignty. In other words, God forced through the speaking the exact words instead of use the Spirit. And remember, where do we start? With the Spirit. It says in Second Peter 1.21, as my friend here was talking to me during this time, that men, and we, and we brought up that verse last time, that the Spirit moved men to speak. So it's not a it's not a mechanical process. God used the human author and all of his hear me now, culture, and all of his surroundings 
that also influenced what was written. Now, it was sovereignly done by God. But like in my missiology class, I talked about the Exodus. And those miracles, I firmly believe, now this is, I wouldn't go to the grave for this, but if you look up in Egyptian history, every single one of those miracles that was like, you know, done by Moses, God did it through Moses, was directed at an Egyptian god. We know, for example, Sobek, God of the Nile, right? Well, you got a God of the Nile, I'm God of the Nile, right? <laughs> All right, I'm not going to beat that one. Right, but okay. So yes, that that's a great answer. Okay, how about number two? Modern scientific methods, claims, and language must be used to evaluate the Bible. Not at all. Not at all. First John 2:27. Okay. But the anointing which ye have received of Him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointed teaches you all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as he hath taught you, he shall abide in him. That doesn't mean that teachers that the Holy Spirit put in the church. Right? I'm out of here. Forget it. <laughs> <laughs> that means the other teachers are yeah, there. Exactly. Thank you, Robert. That's probably the best application I've ever heard of that verse, and that did come to mind as well. What was that reference? Second John. First John, First John. 127. First John 1.27 was used here, talking about the fact that, right, other teachers, right, this is not, like, man, this verse is quoted out of context so much. It's talking about, in that context, what he was writing to, teachers outside the faith, outside the gospel, influencing what was taught in the churches. And so this is a great, that's a great application. What else do you think about this, this point? Scientific methods, claims, and language must be used to evaluate the Bible. Another point is, if man is able to evaluate God's mind and revelation, who is God then? Yeah. If, God, if man is able to evaluate God, then who is God? Yeah. In other words, who is able to sit in judgment over God? Does that sound familiar in many places in Scripture? Job chapter 42. Some other places come to mind. Okay. One more comment on this one. What, what do I mean? Let me ask another more pointed question. What do I mean by scientific claims? What would be one scientific claim that's used to evaluate Scripture? Evolution. Okay, that's, that's great. Evolution would be one. We're going to talk about that later. What are some other ones? Yes. That's a good one. I, I want to repeat that for the tape. I was saying that uh, oftentimes uh, historians or archaeologists will contradict, supposedly, biblical uh, teaching um, because of what they supposedly find in their histories. It's usually not what they find, but a lack of what they see, like you just said. Yeah. So camels were in use at the time of the birth of Christ. Interesting. Interesting. So, that, yeah, that's another one, like, going back. So, yeah, I just wanted you to see it. It is about those kind of things that are oftentimes used from the outside, like that First John reference, 127, right, to uh, evaluate the Bible. But usually it's not just evaluate. Let's be honest here. Usually it's criticize. That, that's usually what we're at. Okay? How about number three? The Bible, as it is currently written, has no mistakes at all. Is this mind-blowing for you? Is this, what do you think? Okay, okay. We're talking about the Amplified Bible here or the message, the word on the street. Those are clearly without it. <laughs> no, okay, let's take the most literal one. The most that is close. Or, or, okay, let's start there. Let's take the most clo- the closest literal translation, whether you think that's NASB or whatever you want to take. Okay, what about that one before we move on? 
Okay, that's a good one. Yeah. Now, that's a really important point, Al, that I want to touch on later if we get there tonight, about words and meaning. So, so what you're telling me is that it's not just about maybe copying errors, okay? But it may be about misinterpretation because of the change of the field of meaning in words. That's a really important point. Yeah. Adam knew Eve means they had a baby. Amen. Exactly. That's right. Okay, okay. Let's not let this degenerate too far. <laughs> Got my eye on you, Bob. <laughs> okay, what else, what else can we say? That's a really good point. What else? Makes no mistakes at all. That's right. So, so Bob is saying we have two levels here that we need to think about. One is really original manuscript and copies, but then also we have a second level. So, do y'all, Bob, repeat that again, just just for everyone to understand that second level here in a, in a little shorter, <laughs> concise. I mean, I, I this is anything. I'm not being a jerk. I just want you to. <laughs> You're talking about the translation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. translation yeah. level. Translators have to make choices. Yes, that's okay. Exactly. Translators make choices. That's right. That, that's what I wanted you to kind of... Translators make choices. And sometimes it's a difficult, if not impossible choice, because we don't know the word. You know the word hopapsagamana, one-time use. There are some words that we have no context for, even in the original manuscripts of other areas. So, so in other words, we come to places where the Hebrew word is nowhere else found anywhere. In fact, a good one is in Psalms. At the beginning, there is a word that's usually translated to the tune of or something. We really don't know what that means. It's only used in the Hebrew Bible. And nowhere else do we find it. That's an interesting... That's one of them. Selah is probably... If I'm right here now, don't quote me. But I think Selah is another one. Where it's not really used a lot. And we, we just aren't sure exactly what it's supposed to mean. We, we can make an educated and well-founded guess. But never forget that's what we're doing. An educated and well-founded guess. So we do have those two types of things that we deal with. Okay, let's go on to number four. The truth of the Bible must be proved through reasoning. Now, Reuben, my friend, this is an important one to your question. The truth of the Bible must be proved through reasoning. What, what do you think about that? Do you agree or disagree that it's a misconception? Yep. How, how, where's a Bible scripture reference? So, so Al is saying that it's a faith issue, not a reason issue. I said last week, Augustine famously said, I believe that I might understand. Okay, Romans 10 what? 10.17, read us for it. Uh-huh. Faith comes by hearing. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's by faith. That, that's a good one. That's a good context there. What else? John 6.29. Yes. Mm-hmm. And these things are written so that you might believe in John as well. What else do we have? I heard one more. 11. Hebrews 11. Yeah. The only, oftentimes the only thing we have is God's written word telling us that something is true that we cannot see, we cannot reason through. By hu- in other words, this is an issue of special versus general revelation. There would be no way we could reason through that one person's death on a cross would pay for our sins. You could not reason through that. You could not reason through many of the truths in Scripture. Now, you might come to... Yes, Bob, go ahead. But that's not to say 
That's a good. That's a good caveat there, Bob. Yeah, the the issue of uh, Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. Is it Romans four? Did you say right? Romans Romans four and Hebrews eleven. Yes. Another point is with the fall, both our emotions, our will, and our reason or yeah. intellect were degraded, corrupted, yeah. mm-hmm. fallen. Mm-hmm. All of our faculties are fallen, including our reason. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. That's a great question. How can Abraham reason to things when he's called the father of faith? It's a reasonable faith. It's called that. Yeah, but I guess the issue I wanted to bring out with this is the starting point. Do you begin by reasoning or by faith? And I think it's always by faith, but it is a reasonable faith. In fact, those who have faith reason well. And I would argue actually the best. We're the best reasoners. Because God has renewed our minds to reason well. I think Acts 17 and Paul there is a great example of that. Okay. Let's talk, let's talk about, let's skip number five here. Let's talk about a couple of these applicational things and then move back into here and try to answer Reuben's question eventually here within the next five minutes. <laughs> but I think, I think that one helps a little bit as a starting point for our foundation um, to that answer. Okay. How about this one? Do people hold these misconceptions in our church? Wow, I just want to throw that out there and ask you that question. Do we find, whether in practice, in preaching, or in our conversation, that we hold these views? So we saw in our statistics report that certainly if we are any semblance of reflection of that, and certainly we must admit we are or we're proud, then that is true. In what area, then, do we see maybe some of these things come about? Just say it. Pride. We think we know it all. Yeah. Counseling. Yeah. Counseling from fellow believers. Yeah. We walk all of the scriptures in our attempt to help other people. Some of that comes out of a good motive, but bad results. What else? I think number four is important for us to think through as a church. The Bible must be proved through reasoning. How might this evidence itself at CBC or in our circles? Yeah, that's right. Believe is an important word that, you know, and I've used it too, too infrequently. I would, I'll admit that. I've used the word believe or trust too infrequently when I've taught and in my interactions with, with the young adults in my ministry here. I really need to, I, I, as I was going through this preparing today, that was one of the things I prayed about. I stopped and prayed. So, you know, like, I realize that oftentimes I rely on my reason too often. I think often we rely on our reasoning. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, the exception rule, right? We use, we use our reasoning to not believe. Yeah. We're gonna, I'm just gonna throw this out there and, and move on, cause maybe this is a hard thing for us to do in a group, but there, there's a article I have here. If we get there tonight, it says, and some of you have heard this before, but it says one of the miscommunication, the communication myths is that the sermon is an effective vehicle for life change. Now, I don't wholly agree with that, but I think we really need to think through what scripture means when it says sermon or preach. Bob and I have talked about this a little bit. What does the actual Bible talk about when it talks about these things? How much interaction was there? How much reason was there? How much exhortation, like, instead of standing in judgment on Scripture on these things, just keeping with historical tradition of our 
denomination or of our, you know, Protestantism, do we evaluate ourselves in light of Scripture or the other way around? I think we really need to be careful about that moving forward in this, in this culture as well. So that's one challenge I think that we, we need to think through. What does the Bible talk about when it means that you have to have certain things in the faith? What, what form can those take? Um, and preaching is a good one because every Protestant church has it in almost exactly the same form. Sure, we may have a little more exegesis and a little less illustration, but it's the same thing almost. What does Scripture talk about in that? So we'll, we'll get there. Yeah, yeah. That's a good. When did Jesus ever preach we, the way we did? In other words, he didn't just reason through the passage for them and give them three points to go home with and be comfortable with. No, he left them confused. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right? Well, so, you know. But exactly, like, the disciples were, what do you mean by that? And, and Peter says, apart, man, his teachings are hard. And you go to Galatians, and the analogies there are difficult. And you read things like, you know, the third heaven, or like the mysteries of God, and those things are hard. So, I'm just saying, maybe inerrancy, one of the applications is, the way in which we do church, we stand above rather than below Scripture. We have a pattern we use. It's not bad, or even sinful, but maybe it's not quite what Scripture means when it says these things. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's a great point. So let me try to summarize that. What she's saying is that it is it again points back to the source of what God does in our lives and the lack of spirit-led um, teaching or or life in the life of a church or a believer where it can lead to incipient heresy if we try to take the place of God's work in someone else's life. And I'm saying that sometimes that results from number four on that sheet. Okay. Question. What, what difference does this make in our outreach and evangelism was the question. She wants me to talk to you about that. Um, I, I realize I'm not going to get there today. Um, okay, let me let me give you one thing. Defensiveness. Okay? It really starts also what, what our sister was saying. Okay? What Felicity was saying. That when we, when we think we are the role of the Holy Spirit, whether in preaching or evangelism, one of the things that happens in my life is I become defensive. I, I have a friend here that's on a case study that we're not going to get to do tonight, which I would have loved. But I wrote that. I changed the name and I wasn't going to tell you that. But I started those conversations defensively, trying to answer everything that I could with my own logic and you know, it kind of worked. But as soon as I started just like throw things out there for him to think about and pray for him, a bigger change happened. And like I think oftentimes that's the way we approach it, especially, let me, let me just say especially in our culture now, people will not listen to your reasons. People, people rarely listen to your reasons. They won't, it's not always the case, but it's rare that they'll listen to your reasons. And so, I think, it, I think defensiveness is one way that we can change. Uh, I think a second way, actually, is to listen to what they have to say. Okay, because, you know, yeah, talking to them at their level, but, but more, more like Jesus did, you know, he listened to the problem. He, he was wiser than we are, yes. He saw better than we did. He saw the woman at the well and he could see through and he knew those things. But if we listen, we can see those things too. And, and it has a lot to do with how, I think it has a lot to do, again, where we start in our Christian walk. Do we go out to people as a church or as individuals with an agenda other than 
helping them to love Jesus Christ and to know him as Savior, and for all eternity have that person as a brother or sister in heaven. Like, I think, again, that's one of the things that can stem from, I don't, I don't think it always does, but can stem from our um, views of inerrancy or infallibility in Scripture. Because we think we come with all the answers, and while that may be true, like it's our approach that lacks, I think, oftentimes. So, um, yeah, I think those are some very practical things on outreach. Another one is, <laughs> here's another good one. Okay, one more, and then I'm done. The method of Scripture, oftentimes you hear, is outdated. But I think that's completely wrong. I think oftentimes the method that was used in Scripture, especially for discipleship, now Bob and I have talked a lot about this, is the right method. Large chunks of Scripture, sometimes unexplained. Less going after them, pursuing them, more letting them come to us with questions. It's kind of like how a young man pursues a young girl. You know, you learn quickly as a young man that if you go after them, they're just going to ignore you. But if you tell them think that you're not interested, something changes there, right? Okay, now maybe, I, but I think, in other words, in Scripture we have a good pattern of Paul seeking those who want, you know, I don't know if the seeker word is a good one, but maybe men of peace is a better one, and we've heard that, right? Why do we, why do we waste so much resource on methods that are proven not to work and produce Christians like the survey that we found out? They don't really, can we even call them Christians if they don't believe Jesus is God? Can we call them Christians if they don't believe that the scripture is authoritative for their life? I mean, those are good questions to ask. You know, those are maybe three things that we can think of and um, that affect our evangelism. Mm-hmm. And it's, and it's the same thing that we're talking about. We have to think we have to out-argue them. Yep. When the scripture just says, that's right. We try to close deals. That's a That's a good way to put it. Are you going to say something about it? The more theological or or reasoned approach narrows your prospects. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. In fact, yeah, that's right. The spirit inside you, you know it's true and he'll convict you. In fact, sometimes now, in that story, actually, this is a true, like I'm not making this up, I met with him before we left. He was about to like, he, he really has an issue with evolution. And so he was like, well, maybe if I can just like ignore Genesis 1 through 3, like I'll become a Christian. And I said, look, you don't, you don't want to do that. Like, you know, some, some people, and oftentimes we hear, maybe not so overtly, but we're like, yeah, just come on. Like, it's not that hard. You'll be okay. Instead of saying, look, you're going to, you might die for this. People are going to hate you. You know, so I told him, and I think this was God's work in my life along that, that journey with this man. I said, look, don't do that. You don't want to have that kind of faith because that's not really faith anyway, right? That's your attempt to get around something you don't believe. And so, that was saying John 5 is a good example of the Trinity used to provoke in evangelism rather than reason. And I think that's that's a great example. Before Abraham was, I am. Yeah, and before Abraham was. and, And isn't that the truth? The whole scriptures talk about him. Right? And so why don't we start with what the scriptures talk about? <laughs> you know? So I want to answer Ruben's question. I think we've done some of the, uh, actually a lot of the heavy work on that as a group, which is awesome as a teacher to see. But and you're asking about those passages which are hard. Sometimes I want to tell you that we won't understand those. Do I know what third heaven is? Maybe there's like 80 commentary views on that. But no. You know? And you know what? That's okay. 
Okay, so one above the second. Thank you, Joe. (laughs) The third heaven is clear. It's one above the second. I don't know if I read a commentary that said that. I think you should publish. (laughs) Right? You know, like the mysteries of God. (laughs) So so let me give you another answer from a weather way, what Bob said. Sometimes I think those are in there. Now, I'm not going to stake my faith on this room. I think sometimes those are in there. As a challenge by God to say, are you going to believe something that's almost unbelievable from a reason standpoint? It's really about faith again. You know, and so it's not faith without reason, it's faith with reason. But I think a good way to think about that again is going back and saying, look, God has demonstrated this to be true and this to be true. Am I going to trust him now? Let me make the other side of the what I believe about that. I think that God will teach us those passages where they're harder in our minds as we come to know him better. And, secondly, as we know scripture better. Let me give you some examples. In Genesis 29... Uh, where, where is Judah's line, Bob? We were just talking about 39? 40. Anyway. Okay, 40. No, no, that's at the end. Um, with Judah and, and the prostitute issue and Tamar, 38. 38 or 39, I think. 38, okay. So Genesis 38 is a very difficult passage to understand because it seems to contradict what we read about righteousness because Judah and Tamar are having this thing going on and Tamar goes and dresses up as a prostitute and, and is like, you know, Judah calls her more righteous later than he is, which is really confusing because she dressed up as a prostitute and slept with him, her father-in-law, which should have been, And she's called righteous. Well, I think a good understanding of Scripture makes that clearer. Because we know that what she's doing is she's trying... I believe this is completely true in in light of the the message in Genesis that the Messiah is promised in three and coming. And the people who trust in that promise are the ones who are righteous. So in that situation, Tamar is said to be righteous because she wants to be in the line of Messiah. Because she knows Judah is that person who's in the line. And so she is going to get what's coming to her, and righteously so, even though her methods... See, it doesn't say she is righteous. It says more righteous than I am. Because he didn't care about that. Does that help? Like, as we understand Scripture, and as God makes it clear to us, and, and I would also say as we obey what we know to be true, God will reveal more by faith in our life. And so, sure, some passages I won't ever understand. I think that's probably one of them. I think the that you're talking to, you know. And that's where our tendency is to ask that why. That's right. Exactly. See, this is that is a great lead-in. See, what happens when we try to make sense of something that we really don't understand is we add why and then make X wrong. And there are great passages in the scripture that warn us against going beyond the line. Mm-hmm. Deuteronomy 29, 29, right. and the yep. Revelation. Yep, Revelation's a good God one. Where God stops and the Revelation stops. Yep. Stop. The whole, the whole book of First John actually is about purity of doctrine and uh, the message of the gospel. And I'm um, not adding to it. Galatians is, is similar. So that is a, that what you said there, the last thing you said, that's very important. So can I just, I'm going to skip some of this, because I want to talk about one other thing today. You know, this is a great example of what happens, okay? <laughs> okay? This this one is clear, okay? I think everyone in the room might agree. That is Brian McLaren, and he wrote a generous orthodoxy, which is really not a generous orthodoxy, it's a heresy. It says there's many ways to heaven... 
Uh, the Bible doesn't teach that homosexuality is wrong. I mean, there's just the Trinity is just a building block. We can take it out and the wall will stand. I mean, he says things like that in that book and in his life. He presided over his son's gay marriage as minister. Um, so anyway, so he started out as a as a Christian, but has fallen away by adding or not not believing in the inerrancy and sufficiency of Scripture. This guy here says your best life now. And um, I think this one here is an even more dangerous one for the church as a whole because it sounds good in a Western society, but it's clearly not true. Tom has preached some good messages on this recently that actually the promises to believers are not your best life now or becoming a better you, but a difficult life now and a struggle with sin, Romans 7. This guy here, now this is a little harder one, and I'll, I'll, I'll end with this today. And he wrote Justification. N.T. Wright is an Anglican scholar that places like DTS have said he's wrong but have not condemned his teaching wholly, but John Piper has in books and articles against this book here. And the problem with this is he, he changes some words in Scripture, but more than that, what he does is add to what the Bible means by justification. He takes it out of context and adds to it. He says, sure, you can look at a courtroom, but, but that's not the whole picture. It's at the end when our justification is done by works. Now, what? Wow, that should like ring in your ears to be false gospel, right? Adding on to what justification means, right? So I don't have time to go into all that, but see, at, the problem with that is these things creep in and then they produce... Maybe not him, okay, maybe that's a little less, but he began here. But things like these creep into our lives, and then they produce in us things like that survey. And really it's an issue of sufficiency. Um, let, me, let me take a few more minutes of your time. I think sufficiency is the issue today. Because what we have is clarity in Scripture as to how we're to live, as to what we are to believe, as to how to treat others. Look, one person said, I think it was even C.S. Lewis, even though he's maybe not the best person to quote on sufficiency, <laughs> but he, I think he said that, right, it's not that the Bible has been found um, wanting and untried, it's been found difficult and impossible to keep, right? Like, the reality is that the Bible gives us everything we need, 2 Timothy 3.16 and many other places. The question is for us, do we believe what it says? Do we believe it? Do we believe that following Jesus is really the best thing for us now and will satisfy us? Do we believe it's really better to love our neighbor than to judge them for their sins when they don't know Christ? I mean, really, it's an issue of sufficiency. Is, is my Bible sufficient for my life? Is it enough? Or do I need to seek out people like Joel Olstein or like T.D. Jakes or some others who teach us that we need an extra word from God in our life to be complete. It's an issue of sufficiency. Yeah. Questions? Yeah. It's it's making uh, an idol, Bernie's saying, or forming our life how we want it to be, not Scripture says. So I think, Bernie, that's a fair point. I think what the reason why uh, R.C. Sproul has done it this way is he, he said it's an issue of authority which speaks to what you're saying. It contributes to it. Yeah, certainly. And I, I think he would agree with you completely. I'm taking a little different tack and saying, yes, authority is an issue, but I guess I'd do it this way. 
When we have a, if we were to draw a giant Venn diagram up here, or a giant circle, let's say we draw a big circle, is sufficiency greater? A bigger circle that encompasses more is authority. A bigger circle that encompasses more of the issues. I'm inclined to say that authority is a big issue, but sufficiency is a bigger one. Because, am I sufficient for my life, or do I lack, and do I need God's input? See, I think it's more than just an authority issue. Because actually, when you look at Genesis 1 again, the very first sin, that was a sufficiency issue, I believe. Not just an authority issue. Is what God says true? Is he, did he say enough? And ironically, <laughs> there as well, what did, what did Satan use? He said, did God really say? But then he added to God's words, didn't he? He said, and not even touch it. But that's not what he said. He said, no, you cannot eat of it. And so I think, I agree with you. This is a massive issue. But I think this is a bigger one that encompasses the issue of authority for us. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, when you when you take issues today like homosexuality and women in leadership, that those narrow authority down and so I think sufficiency then becomes clearly the issue when we look at problems like that in our society as well. So I'm not I'm not disagreeing, Bernie, I'm saying authority is a big issue. But my problem, the reason why I talked about this so much tonight as well and tried to lay a good grounding is because he doesn't even include the word sufficiency. And to me, that's a problem. So, uh, That's a good one. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> Melon is saying that some people have their Bible and Jesus at home and they say, I don't want to take part in the church. I have enough. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. And she was saying that for her, these two are equal. Yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. Bob would add the word vitality, talking about the, the living character of the Word of God. And certainly that's talked about in Hebrews not four. four. Hebrews four. We could talk about this all day because it's such an important issue, but we got close. <laughs> Thanks for the input. You make this class. And discussion is great as a teacher. So